Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear all of you also have a favorite prostitute. Because <laughs> this talk's called God's favorite prostitute. And uh, I noticed a couple people are not here yet. But I can't complain. I slept in yesterday. I missed the whole Winston Parker presentation. So that was God making sure I wasn't going to complain about this morning. But I'm glad to be here on a Sunday morning. I usually don't preach unless it feels like church. So at least I got a chance to do it here. On, wait. We had to wait till Sunday morning before I get a chance to be up here. Recently, uh, Jerry Bangert has said in his inimitable way that the uh, nagging problem in the church today is what in the world to do with the New Testament commands. Because there seems to be a disconnect there because as we are ushered into the Christian faith and we have the good news, then somebody does a head fake and he somehow introduces us to New Testament commands. And if we were Old Testament commands, we could say, well, that's no longer enforced. But we have the New Testament commands. And that underlies sort of a bigger problem underneath, which is what to do about the pernicious presence of sin that continues in our life after we become believers. So, uh, it, uh, we, we have uh, Jerry's verse, which we were greeted with when he started Friday night. If by the transgression of the one death reigned through one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life. But when he gets done telling us the good news in Romans 4 and 5, he immediate go, immediately goes to the big problem. And the big problem is, <clears throat> are we to continue in sin? Later on in 6, I think it's around 15, he also talks about, show, should we continue to sin now that we're no longer on the law, uh, under law? So the big issue is, what do we do about sin continuing to lurk even though we get all this good news in 4 and 5 in Romans? The first question is, what are we going to do about this big problem? And that is the problem. And from inference in Romans, we know Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ is he came to save us from sin. Sin is the death-causing agent. Sin is, is the killer. This is worse than the coronavirus sin. It is not only infectious, but we get born with it without even doing anything. So, we all have various degrees of sin in our life. I personally feel defeated. I don't want to bore you with my long list and discouraged, but I'm 74 years old this year, and I'm not. 100% proud of my Christian life. Here I am a seminary grad because I thought going to seminary would clean me up a little bit. It only gave me much more guilt. And then, of course, I met a man named Walt Hendrickson who saved my life. He saved my life, and that was like 1984. 
And then we get running to Jerry. He talks to us about sin above the line and sin below the line because I've been working on stuff above the line, so at least I look good. But when you start talking about sin below the line, I'm looking under my belt, and I tell you, things are not good. <laughs> so he says that you can work, work, work all your life and clean up your behavior and look good with, about, with your sins above the line. But only Jesus Christ can help you with your sins below the line. And that's related to what Winston talked to us yesterday morning when he talked about the health of our soul. We got a bifurcated person in that we are body, soul, and mind. Some people say we exist in three parts, but I think for all practical purposes, it's two parts. It's the physical part of us and then the spiritual or soul or invisible part of us. But the more we're in the game, the more we realize that although we're supposedly looking like good Christians, there's something about that nature that's not changing. So there's two surprises, I guess, when we get to heaven, they say two surprises and one surprises who you never thought in the world would be there, and there they are in heaven. And the second surprise is all the people for sure you thought were going to be in heaven, but they ain't there. And so the scariest verse for me, of course, we had a little poll among our little ministry, and we had a poll to, to vote on what was the scariest verse. And this verse won it easily. And that's funny because I thought we would all have different verses. But of course, most Christians don't have any scary verses because they don't underline anything that's scary. Why would you underline any verses scary? We want to just move them out of our minds. But with my little mischievous little game I was playing with my buddies, let's vote on the scariest verses. And this one is the one that won it. Many have say to me, Lord, I, didn't I prophesy in your name? These guys are actually calling him Lord. And then I do, do miracles in your name, and then he, then he would declare to them, I never knew you. He's looking at them and saying, I don't even know you guys. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, I like this part, because I think that is biblical support for charismatics who are working in miracles, those guys are in danger. That's how I interpret that verse. That's not for me. Looks like there's, I, I must have offended somebody. I apologize. <laughs> that wasn't funny, and I thought that was funny. <clears throat> then we hear about Josh Harris. Of course, I'm too old to even know about Josh Harris, but supposedly he wrote the famous book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Well, that's something I wouldn't buy. But uh, he made a lot of money. He's a big-time Christian. Now he's a mega-church pastor. But not only did he kiss dating goodbye, he kissed his wife goodbye. And he kissed his church goodbye. And he kissed his faith in Jesus Christ goodbye. So what's up with that? Because we believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. That's just doctrine. That's what we're taught. And uh, so therefore, if this guy is going to kiss the faith goodbye, it must have meant, if Calvin is correct, he never was a Christian in the first place. Because you can't lose your salvation. So this is strange stuff. 
Bill Hybels, famous pastor at Willow Creek. He was a hero of mine. I wanted to be the Chinese version of Willow Creek, have the absolute biggest yellow metal, uh, mega church uh, <laughs> ever. And I went to seminary all planned out, ready to do this thing. But here he goes and gets a accused of all kinds of stuff. He's an absolute lech. He's got he's more than just a Me Too movement, but boy, did they pile on him. Bill Hybels, pastor of Willow Creek, uh, a good buddy of mine, an attorney, Bob and Dorothy Chan, his kid comes home from college and tells his parents and announces, I am not a believer anymore. And I'm going, whoa, but you know what? That's common, that's happening. Kids coming back from college and saying, Dad, I don't, I don't, I'm not with this stuff. I don't believe this stuff anymore. My brother-in-law married my wife's sister, and he and I were one of really good friends. We used to, you know, go to baseball games together and football games, and he was a good football player. We used to have a little small penny ante poker game. It was just small penny ante stuff. <clears throat> So that doesn't count. <clears throat> but anyway, so he's in an MBA program. On the night his wife, my wife's sister, gives birth, he decides to go off to Vegas with one of his classmates and have a, a sexual weekend while his wife is delivering a baby. And then he squanders his family's he, uh, estate. He was the... Uh, he was the uh, the guy who ran the estate, and he lost all the money. So six of his siblings are really mad at him. And then he moves to Vegas because he's a compulsive gambler. And now, just last week, he goes in for open-heart surgery, and his wife asks him, ex-wife asks him, Cecil, aren't you worried? And he said, I'm not worried. You know, I'm saved. I'm not worried. And she didn't even know what to say because it's so shocking for a guy like that who's lived 30 years of his life, a complete profligate life, to say, I'm not worried, don't worry, I'm saved, I'm saved already, don't worry. Well, does the Bible, so that brings up the question, what is a genuine Christian? What is something that's real? Because we do have among us people that don't belong to him. And so typical me, I'd like to know what the signs are. I'd like to be able to, I'm not gonna go on a witch hunt, but first of all, I'd like to make sure about myself. Sometimes the way my wife talks to me and she says, I'm not sure you're a Christian, but I said, but please, honey, don't, don't, don't get me that low, don't do that. So, but I think the better way to ask the question is, and, and can we look in the Bible and can we try to study what is genuine Christianity? And I think the better way to look at that would be, what, why don't we just ask, what is it that pleases God? What's the currency that God relates to? Well, it's obviously faith. We, we know that. That's what we learned in the first year of vacation Bible school. It is faith. Now, even though he is sovereign, he does what he wants, nobody tells him what to do, nobody uh, has to do anything, there are still things that make him happy, still things that he is pleased with. The Bible actually says 
the things that are making them happy. So the best way to examine this question, which is the underlying question, what is a real Christian? What makes God happy? Is to try to look in the Bible for good examples of faith. So I'm thinking David, Abraham, Elijah, Solomon. The problem with Solomon, when we were in seminary, we were looking at Solomon's life and the way he started going downhill toward the end of his life and going into idolatry. We can't even be sure about Solomon. But wait a minute, the guy wrote three books in the Bible, but there's so much stuff in the Bible about Solomon that doesn't jive with what we understand how Christian men should behave. Uh, and of course, it all started when he loved foreign women and they led him into idolatry. So we're not gonna look at Solomon, you know, but, but, uh, but we don't wanna look at these goody-goodies either. So you, got, you get the guys at the Transfiguration. These guys are talking with Jesus. These guys have come from another world. The disciples said, holy cow, what is it? There's Moses there, there's Elijah. We don't want to study them because we already know. Well, they're, they're in heaven. What we want to do, we want to find somebody that's in heaven but doesn't look like he should be in heaven. We want to look at the flakiest person that we can be sure of that's in heaven. <laughs> we want to look at the fringe. We want to look at the outliers. <laughs> Because these are the people we can identify with, identify with, right? We can. I, I don't want to study Walt Hendrickson or Billy Graham. That's not going to help me at all. I'm not in that class. Not that. No, I got to look at a flaky person, and the flakiest person I could find is a prostitute, and her name is Rahab. I forgot how to do this. There it is. Not bad looking. <laughs> <clears throat> Can you believe that the internet got a picture of her? <laughs> so let's study Rahab, because there's something there. And uh, if I can understand why she's in heaven, I might be able to feel more comfortable. What is it that tips God's heart? Now, she's also ideal because there's a lot of other stuff in the Bible about her. This is an Old Testament character. She's mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. She's mentioned in Hebrews 11. She's mentioned in James chapter 2. You know, it's amazing. So, this, I think this lady is in heaven, okay? And uh, so, but, but when we look at her life, oh, she's a prostitute. She's a, she's a madame. She recruits women into, into a life of sin. See, just the elementary things in life. I, by me? There it is. Yeah, I don't know which way. Oh, I know what, what I'm doing now. There we go. So what I want to do here is, uh, by the way, the classic line that is attributed to Rahab comes out of 
Joshua chapter 2, that's where she's in. She's in 2 and 6. Classic line that she, she gives, which is, I think, the bingo, the bingo line. She said, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard from the, about the Red Sea stunt and what you did to the two kings, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and earth beneath. So that to me is the closest thing I could find to a genuine declaration of belief. Now let's look at the history behind Rahab. Where are we? Well, we just did the movie The Ten Commandments, and uh, these people have been in slavery, I think it's about 400 years and this is a nation born into slavery. And they got, there are a bunch of them. I think it's 1.3 million or is it 2.1 million? I don't know, but they're moving. They're coming out of Egypt and they're going to the so-called promised land. So this is a picture of the land of Canaan. Land of Canaan before the Israelite conquest. Here comes the conquest. We are now in Joshua chapter 1. Rahab starts in Joshua chapter 2. So this is the, the Salt Sea, and this is Sea of Galilee. This is the Jordan River. Here's Jerusalem right here, and this is Palestine. This is what we're arguing about. This, this place is really nothing special. There's no oil here. And there were rumors of grapes and honey, but I don't know what happened to that, that stuff. <laughs> but anyway, these guys are coming from Egypt. They're coming from Egypt, and it's a ragtag army. And they're moving this way. They've been going around Mount Sinai for 40 years because of what Jerry mentioned, Kadesh Barnea, where they were ready to go in, they sent a committee in. The vote was 10 to 2 not to go in. And boy, did, it, did God get ticked at that. So nothing makes him mad. It's if you don't believe me, you don't trust me. So he says, okay, you guys are not going in. And he says, no, 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 I'm sorry, sorry. We, we changed our mind. No, we're going in. We're going in. We believe you. We believe you. So God says, no way. You can't do that. And Jerry told that story. So besides that, God says, I tell you what. Every one of you, everybody over the age of 18 or something will die in the wilderness except for Caleb and Joshua. So these guys are all dead. Here we come. It's pretty much a whole new generation, and they're coming up this way. They're coming up from the east, and there's five sort of kingdoms, kingdom of Moab, kingdom of Sihon, kingdom of Ammon, kingdom of Og, and I think kingdom of Edom is in here, but these guys are all Canaanites, Amalekites, Hittites, Hivites, Parasites, and Termites. <laughs> so, and these are all these little city-states. Because of the geography of the land, valleys and, and mountains and stuff, and they could never get together. They're all like individual city-states with their own little kings, guys that think they're hot. They have, they have their walls around them, and they're always warring. Okay? 
And these group of people, there's not a group of people at this time that God doesn't vomit over more. He is sick of these people. And he's got good reason to. He tells these people coming up, when you get this land, I'm going to give you this land. I want every man, woman, child, cat, dog, cattle, goat annihilated. Read my lips. I want them annihilated. Well, good grief, God. I mean, I thought you were the loving God of the New Testament. I know it's the Old Testament, but good grief. <clears throat> so here they come. And uh, <clears throat> they arrive east of the Jordan River, right opposite Jericho. And these guys in Jericho, they have to change their underpants because they see what happens to King Sihon. This turkey says, you can't pass through my land. All they want to do is pass through the land. Just let us pass. We don't need, we're, we're going over here. Let, the guy wouldn't let them pass through. He said, we promise not to eat any of your corn or pick any of your wheat. We promise not even to drink anything from your well. And the stupid turkey says, no, you can't come through. So what happens? He gets wiped out. And they take five of his little villages. And then this guy, King of Og, he comes down too. And he wants to fight them. And he gets annihilated. And so, meanwhile, these guys are sort of watching this. This is in Numbers. This stuff is happening in Numbers. right? That's the last history book before Joshua. So these guys are uh, a little worried. So... Uh, that's the setting of our story. Now, uh, the reason why these guys, the reason why God wants them wiped out, right here, Canaanite religious practices, polytheistic, this stuff, child sacrifice, this sacred prostitution law, I think that they had no trouble getting the men to go to church back there. But uh, snake worship, the snake, that's the evil incarnate. That's the image of Satan himself. That's why these people need to be wiped out by a holy God. So, the, so we're back to the story where this this, this is coming, and these guys know it's coming. The first town after this sea, the first major town is Jericho. And we know from the story of the Good Samaritan that Jericho is right down the hill from Jerusalem, something like 17 miles. Of course, uh, you have to go up that hill, and it's a pretty treacherous hill because guys will jump you on that path up from Jericho. But when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, he went through Jericho and he met Zacchaeus. So anyway, these guys have stopped. Uh-oh. These guys have stopped here, so what do you think is going to happen? So the mayor gets everybody together, and everybody's worried about it. And he says, listen, guys, calm down. You know, we've got, we, people have tried to take us before. They can't. We've got walls that are 12 feet, 20 feet high, and they're six feet thick. 
in cement. And then we got a second wall that's equally as high, and we got a moat in between. We've got 10 months of food stored up. We got a year and a half worth of water. We know what's happening. These people, who are these people? These guys are slaves. They're not an army. They don't have any siege equipment. They don't even have any catapults. They don't even have any ladders. What are we afraid of? Calm down, everybody. Just calm down. So here's Rahab in the audience and, and then her, her competitor. Let's call her Roxanne. She's got a, she's got a house, too. And Roxanne is going, no sweat, no, nothing to worry about. But Rahab, typical Rahab, she goes, I don't know. I, I just don't know. But, but the, the mayor does a good job of saying with data, don't worry. They're not going to do anything about it. So what happens is they send in spies. Instead of 12, too many guys to sneak in 12. They just got two guys, two spies. And just like in the TV series Gunsmoke, you guys are too young to remember Gunsmoke. But the, you ride into town, and the first place you go to is a saloon. And you stay overnight because it's a saloon slash whorehouse. And Kitty was the character back in the 50s. I, one of my favorite shows. That was a great TV show. <clears throat> See, so what happens if you get an old guy as a speaker? <clears throat> so Kitty is Rahab. She's a prostitute. She's a madame. She recruits lady into sin. She's a liar. And she's a traitor to her country. Because when these spies come in, for some reason, everybody knows they're Jewish. I don't know, maybe... Maybe Rahab peeked in while they were taking a shower, but for some reason, they knew they were Jewish, and these Jews are up to no good. And so they, uh, and I don't know how much time they have, but there's a knock on the door, and there's a posse outside. We know you have Jews in here. We're going to bring them out. And Rahab got the door partially open, and she goes, Yes, they were here, but they went out. And if you hurry up, they went that away, you can get them. Meanwhile, she has stashed them on her roof under some straw. And all they have to do is open the door and say, we'll take a look ourselves. Thank you. And she is dead. So that's a pretty gutsy thing to do for that lady. And that's vividly in the story. These are the stories we read our kids during vacation Bible school. It's pretty exciting. So, so she hides them in the straw, and uh, and then she lets them down off the wall. Apparently, she's got a condo right on the wall, and uh, and then she goes back and makes a deal. She's not even Jewish. She's already making a deal with the Jews. She says, "Listen, I'm saving you guys." But when you come and you take us, would you please remember me and my family? Because we don't want to die. And they said, uh, okay, here's, you got to tie a little red ribbon onto your windowsill, and we'll give the army 
notice that any that the people inside this particular unit with a red cord coming off their window, we won't touch it. But if you dare go out, we're we're we can't be held responsible. Just stay in your place and tie a red ribbon. And it, that sounds like a fairy tale, but that is a story from the Word of God. And we know what happened. She so not only do we have this story, but we got these three mentions. In Hebrews 11, she's in the Hall of Fame. I don't know if you guys call it the Hall of Fame, but Hebrews 11 has a list of everybody that he thinks has the faith. Even though these guys are Old Testament people, people from the author's point of view, we don't even know who wrote Hebrews. King James says it was Paul, but Donald thinks so. But whoever wrote Hebrews says that here's the list of this all-star team, Hall of Fame. Matthew 1, she's in the genealogy of Jesus. You've got to be kidding me. This is a Canaanite prostitute who's in the bloodline of Jesus. And then in James, she's an example of faith of good works. So let's take a look at these. In Hebrews 11, <clears throat> it starts out, by faith Abel did this, by faith Enoch did that, by faith Noah built, by faith Abraham moved, by faith, by faith Sarah, all the way down. I mean, there's an interruption right here. There's, a, there's, a, there's an interruption right here between around, around 13. And then we start again, Abraham, Isaac, all the way down until you get to verse 31. And you got Rahab's name. And when we're in VBS, nobody wants to, nobody even knows who Rahab is. And no Sunday school teacher wants to explain who she is. But she's there in verse 31. And we look at the reason why she's there. And it says something nebulous. You remember what it says? See, nobody remembers. So, <clears throat> she is in the Hall of Fame in verse 31 because she welcomed the spies. That's what it says, something like that. Is that what it says? She welcomed the spies. And uh, I don't get that. I, I think... It's more than just a one-off thing that she did. Because when we have our own Hall of Fame, you could pitch a no-hitter, you could pitch a no-hitter, you could pitch a perfect game in the World Series. I mean, I don't think a one great game is enough to get you in the Hall of Fame, you know, in the Baseball Hall of Fame. You might be hit two or three Grand Slams in one game. I think it may have almost been done. You can't get into the Hall of Fame for one thing. So. It's given us the impression in, v, in v, VBS that she is in the Hall of Fame because that she decided to hide the spice. Now, I'm thinking when there's a knock on the door and there's a posse outside, she just made an instant reactive decision. Nope, they were here, but they went that way. And if you go quick, you got to go quick you might be able to catch them. And the, those dumb guys, they all just follow what Rahab said. That, that lady had some gravitas about the way she talked to, to men anyway. So uh, 
So I'm a little dubious. I'd like to know much more. I mean, there, there's what Jerry's talking about, you know? I mean, there's got to be much more to the kind of life Rahab lived to get her into the Hall of Fame. Otherwise, are you teaching us that when we get a chance to hide spies, you know, like uh, there were people that harbored Jews from the Nazis, there's diary of Anne Frank, maybe people that do that, maybe these are special. God's got a soft spot for people who do that. Maybe that's what it's teaching us, you know. I, I, I think though, and especially looking at those other people, these people are solid lifeline, lifelong followers and fearers of Yahweh. So, but I'd like to know what it is. Because if we just look at what Hebrews 11 says, then it does look like works. You're saved by works. You gotta hide somebody or you gotta, Take a chance. You've got to put your life at risk, lying. And even though you sell your country down the drain, a lot of skeptics say she only did it because she wanted to save her butt. You know, she just wanted to uh, miss out on the coming slaughter. But again, if you listen to that mayor's talk seriously, you, you, you know, there's good reason to think you're not, don't worry, they're not going to overcome the city. Again, these just, this is a slave army. They don't have any siege equipment. So there's something else behind this that's at work. So maybe there's a hint in the Matthew 1. Oh, so she's an outlier of extreme importance. This is, the, this is her, what she's basically known for. Okay. Now, let's look at Matthew 1. This is the genealogy. We start... Let's see, how do I make this go back to a full screen? Thank you. Uh, I'm not very good at technology. I just missed, uh, the, the, I'm just on the cusp before everything changed with, the, with technology. Okay. So what do we do? Here we go. Adam, Seth, Enoch. Okay. These are all the men. We go like this. And then we come down here after whoever that is, Natishan, and we get Salmon. No, no, not Salmon. Salmon. Salmon marries Rahab. And Rahab is mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. It's right around verse 5. And by Salmon, they have Boaz. Rahab, the prostitute, is the mother of Boaz. She's the mother-in-law of Ruth. She's the great-grandmother of God's absolute favorite, King David. Rahab's the great-great-grandmother of King David. So what do we get out of that? Well, I don't know if it's just luck and... Uh, but this guy, Boaz, he's a stud. Uh, he gets married late because uh, when Ruth was trying to sleep with him because he was drunk that night. I mean, it, didn't, it wasn't like it sounds. 
but in Ruth chapter 3. <laughs> Boaz says, Ruth, baby, I mean, you could marry a lot younger guys, you know, good, handsome guys, but the fact that you want to marry me, I mean, it has to do with this concept of a kingsman redeemer. And this is a Jewish custom, and I think I'm, when I was studying that in seminary, I got completely lost. I think I got a C minus on the quiz. But the Kingsman Redeemer, Boaz had that in his mind. And this is, this woman, she is a Moabite. Her mother-in-law's Naomi. Naomi's related to Boaz's dad or something. And she comes in and she, and they get married and that begets Boaz, that begets Obed, Jesse, David. So, for, I was talking to Winston, for Rahab to raise Boaz and for him to be the kind of guy that's depicted in Ruth, he was a really a godly man. The mom had to do something right. I mean, how in the world does she know how to raise a Jewish a kid, and Winston says, yeah, but Lee, you got to be careful. I mean, don't read too much into this thing, you know, because I'm thinking maybe it's related to, to this much more idea. And he goes, what? Well, I think Rahab got converted Someplace while the news was coming in that this, the Israeli army is coming up. And when she notices that she's got two spies in her house, and, uh, and then there's a knock on her door. I, right around there, I think that she got converted, where she became a believer. I think when she's talking to them, we know your God is a mo- on earth is the most powerful God. We heard about the Red Sea stunt when you wiped out the entire Calvary. Of, and that's a 40-year-old rumor right there. And your God is the, is, is the God, the living God. I think that shows, I think that's conversion right there. But then we jump to what happens after the famous song, you know, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, 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 and the walls came tumbling down. So she's standing there in this rubble. She is seeing her home. She is seeing all these Israelites coming out with their swords and sticking anybody that's alive, anybody, man, woman, even babies. And she is watching this whole thing. And uh, I don't know if she's going, man, that was close. I mean, but she has got to be stunned because what book would have written in it? Now, be careful about people that come in with trumpets and and these people that march around your city for seven times. Watch out. They're up to no good. You know, they're going to watch around. And who would have any idea that you just blow the trumpet simultaneously and then collapse the whole thing, and then the army just walks in and just sticks everybody? I mean, that was a massacre. And... uh, and, and Rahab, like the rest of us in Christianity, we think, that's done. I'm glad I said the sinner's prayer. I just got saved. But her life is just beginning. 
She has no idea what she's going into. I mean, not only does she got to trade in her miniskirts for a muumuu and get rid of her lipstick and all that, she's going into an Israeli women's culture. I don't know, I don't see that many movies about them, but I think they walk around with their eyes down all the time. They're not looking for anything. And so um, her life is beginning, and I think maybe that's what Jerry's talking about in terms of this much more. Because Rahab has seen an amazing thing. Talk about knowing you got saved. But her life is just beginning because she now is marching from the worst piece of doo-doo, Canaanite woman, prostitute, madame, and she is marching through life. She cheats a little bit. If I got absorbed to the, by the Israeli culture, I think I'm going to cooperate no matter what. I think I'm just going to do what I'm supposed to do. But she, she marches through that culture to become the mother of Boaz. She gets fully assimilated. And so maybe if somebody, an angel could have been there, Rahab, I know you just saw an amazing thing and you've now come into as a part of the family of Yahweh. But baby, there's much more that you're going to have to learn. Now, it's a stretch, but as Jerry used to say, as Jerry has said here, you know, I don't have any biblical basis to think what happened to her afterwards. So, so just take it for what it was. That's just kind of an interesting story. So now we go to James. And... Uh, James says, let's just not look at faith, faith, the special kind of faith. Because everybody says they have faith, and, and we've even forgot it. You know, we just say, as long as you say the sinner's prayer, you're in. And the interesting thing about James is that he says there's faith and then there's faith. So it's not just any faith. So the kind of faith that's salvific, the kind of faith that people like Rahab and Samson had and, and uh, Sarah and Abraham had, it's a special kind of faith. So let's differentiate that. The first thing that James will say is it's not just intellectual, academic belief. Because look, in verse 19, even the demons believe you do well in verse 19 here, where you say that you believe God is one. Well, this is, their, this is their doxology. This is called the great Shema. It's in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our, one, our Lord God is one God, Deuteronomy 6. And they just say that. That is absolute orthodox. And that, according to James, is no biggie, no big deal. Because you believe God is one, okay, you do well, but the demons also believe that and shudder. And I'll show you belief that's backed up by works. Are you, recognized, are you willing to recognize your foolish fellow? Faith without works is useless. So then earlier he says, if someone says he has faith, 
but no works, can that faith save him? That's like my brother-in-law. You say, don't worry, I'm going to go to heaven. You said the sinner prayer, but you, I wonder, because the Bible says, can your faith save you? Because even though it has no works, it's faith by itself. And that kind of faith by itself is dead. And it's just like what the demons believe. And you know what he calls it? He calls it useless. So, the great thing about this James passage, and I'm still looking for hints. I mean, I don't know what to call this faith. Uh, We believe, according to Paul, that faith happens through imputation, or salvation comes through imputation. Uh, imputation in, is mentioned in Romans chapter 4, like nine times. The heart of what happened to us it was penned by Paul in the letter to Romans. It starts around 323-ish, 3.21. And then the heart of it starts in four, and it goes to five. And, and the end of five, Jerry is looking at much more. But the stuff in front of much more is how you get saved. You get saved by faith through believing. So this is the same Greek word. One's a noun form, faith. You have faith. And the one's a verb, which is you got to believe. If you believe, you will be saved. Now, uh, Paul, when he got converted, he got knocked off his horse. It was, the light was so bright that he was blinded. He, got to, he had to go to Ananias' apartment. He had to sit there. He just didn't know what happened to him. He did see Jesus in the sky. And, and Jesus said, Paul, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? And then... He realizes he's seeing the Lord. He got so excited. He goes running out like the most on-fire evangelist you ever saw. He went nuts. He went so nuts, they had to get him out of there because he was just causing them trouble. Even though he was so gung-ho, they had to get him out, and they stashed him in Arabia. And Paul's out just stashed for three years. And in that time, he gets a chance to study and sit down. And one day he's looking through Genesis chapter 15. He, and he's reading about Abraham. And he sees verse 6. And it says, Abraham believed God. And it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. And he went nuts. I mean, he, went, he got on his chairs screaming. He was all by himself in this little hole in Arabia. But he realized that it's just you believe God and it gets reckoned to you as righteousness. Some Bibles call it credited. And uh, Walt talks about it as imputation. There's three imputations in the Bible. God imputed Adam's sin to the whole human race. God imputed the sins of the elect, limited, limited atonement, onto Jesus. Bad enough he dies for the elect, let alone the whole world. And the third imputation, God imputes the righteous, perfect life of Christ onto believers. 
So it ain't me anymore. I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I'm living by faith in the Son of God who died for me, gave his life up for me. So that third imputation is very important for me. It's the life of Christ. In fact, baptism is a ceremony of death. Okay? When we go down on the water, we're buried with him in baptism. And we're raised with him in newness of life. So the, the way we do it is we piggyback onto the life of Christ. So it, you, your life gets molded into or intertwined into the, the life of Christ through baptism. Now that's, that's a good academic idea, but how that works, me at 74, I'm still <laughs> trying to figure out how that works because when my wife talks to me, she thinks she's still talking to Lee Yi, her husband. You're talking to Jesus Christ, baby. <laughs> no, I'm not. So, uh, but it's true. We call that positional truth. So, I have been replaced. And you know, imputation is how all worth is decided. We all impute worth. If I see you come up in a 1956 Chevy truck or a Ford truck, I say, wow, that's a great looking truck. How much is that worth? Oh, I don't know. You know, well, who knows? It's imputed. I went to Cuba and actually saw all these old cars because that's all they got and they've just been keeping them up. Old Rolex watches, you know, land in California near Silicon Valley, land in Lancaster. It's all imputed. In the stock market, you see this ticker tape. You see Amazon going up and down in the day as much as 25 in a couple of, in a Friday a couple of Fridays ago it went up 220 points up and down in the same day this is stuff that's money that's real money and it's how do you get that worth it's imputed and that that's the very thing that we use to put value on something God puts value on us because he imputes the life of Christ to us so we have trouble to believe that we'll tell you what just believe how you were a sinner in the first place. You were born into it. It was imputed to you. You got that from a man named Adam. By the same nature you got into trouble, it's the only way you can get out of that trouble. You got in through the imputation of Adam's sin. You got to come out the same way. And you got to believe that, that Christ, the sin, your sin got imputed onto Christ at the cross. And then his life, got imputed unto you. So I'm a firm believer in, being, in, in believing it's only by faith, but I want to stick an extra thing on that faith because James has got me spooked now, and then I've got Bill Hybels, and I've got the guy who kissed the, the dating goodbye, and, I, and a lot of strange things happen. And so, I, so the Bible says in, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself, check yourself, see if you're in the faith. So I'll, I'll just do that. Let me just look at myself, what kind, of, uh, what kind of life I have. And I think the answer is this bifurcation. I, my wife thinks I'm a schizophrenic 
but she's supported by the Bible because in Romans chapter 7, on the one hand, things I want to do, I really do want to do it, I end up not doing it. But things I actually don't want to do because of sin, I end up doing that. Talk about being schizophrenic. After everything in the dust settles about me getting saved, now I got the Romans 7 problem, the man in Romans 7. So this bifurcated situation here is that we are converted and our whole outlook on life changes because we have found a loving Lord. Now, I don't think Rahab knew that Jesus Christ would actually execute the transaction to get her into heaven. But after she gets in, she's going to know that it was Jesus on credit. I mean, that she got saved on credit because Jesus was going to die for her. He dies for all of us. Okay. But uh, it's interesting that here in James, James uses the same verse that Paul had. So Paul is jumping up and down about Genesis 15, 6. And that Genesis 15, 6 is this. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. That's 15, 6, word for word. He lifts the whole thing and he puts it in Romans 4, verse 3, and he creates an entire argument around that one verse. You just believe God, and it goes imputed, zap, credited, reckoned to you, you are righteous. That's how the Christian faith works. Now, two examples how this works. He picks one man and one woman, and these guys are Old Testament people. And the man is Abraham. Well, we can go with Abraham... In fact, we don't know when Abraham got converted. In 12, he heard somebody say, you got to move from Ur. And the dummy moved. His wife was going, what? Where are we going? I don't know. Well, we got to move. Then in 15, he gets told that the stars represent the number of descendants he's going to have. He believes that. And then James says he gets converted. There I go again. James says he gets converted he gets converted in Genesis 22. Abraham was justified by works when he went took Isaac up to Mount Moriah on the altar. That's what James says. So I asked, uh, I remember a professor at seminary, we were asking, what are we doing here? And the, the professor says, oh, there were two conversions. What? This is a conversion on Genesis 22 when he takes Isaac, and then in 15. So, so it's a little fuzzy here, even when we're in the Bible. And so on the same basis, this lady is also justified by works just like he was justified by work, Rahab is justified by work when she received the messengers and sent them along. Now, this is the verse. This verse in green is the same verse that appears in Romans 4, verse 3. 
Genesis 15, 6. All three verses are the same. So in James chapter 2, I already read this. In the same way, Rahab was justified works. So therefore, we got a confusion. And there's been money made out of this confusion. And uh, I went and bought this book because here's a book called Paul versus James. So these guys are confused. This guy says it's by grace, nothing. Don't even worry about your life. Don't start adding things. You're going to, get, you're going to be accused of work salvation. Don't be like these Mennonites or whoever's down here. These guys are all into the, the way they live because their father says you're, not, you're going to go to hell if you don't do this stuff. And then, then James is supporting sort of an Arminian view. And Paul is the, so the author of the reform movement because it was Paul that got Luther all excited when Luther bumped into Romans 4, 3. And, uh, and so there's more than one book like this. So this whole book is on this contradiction, okay? And we're in the middle of it, and I didn't ask to be in the middle of it, but Rahab is put in there as an example. Now we're into something big because we're fiddling with Rahab. We're looking for an outlier to see how in the world she gets saved. And she is in the center of this controversy where we've got her with Abraham as examples that you get saved through faith with works. Okay, well, we're not going to change Nobody's going to get me to change. I believe we are saved by faith alone. I'm a product of Reformed theology, and uh, it's only faith. There's no works. Now, what? I went to this workshop with uh, Dan, and he did a good job of explaining rewards. Now, that helps me. We're going to move all the works out into another category. Nothing to do with salvation. He made that, uh, he made that clear from the beginning, but it has to do with the quality of your heaven. You know, if you want, you can go, you know, if it's a big skyscraper in the sky, you can live in the basement if you want. You know, I want to get in the penthouse. And I look at my life and I think, well, if the, if the skyscraper is 280 stories, I think I'm at about floor 17, you know. But in Hong Kong, it's that way. The higher you go, the more expensive it is. But anyway, anything, <laughs> any thinking that you have on what heaven's going to be like is going to miss the mark. We are so far feeble, so far feeble that there's no way we can, we can think about this. But at least I know this, that there's faith and then there's faith. We got to put, we got to come up with a special name. So let's call it, now there's faith and then there's Rahab faith. Oh, nobody knows Rahab. We got, there's faith and there's special faith. Special, special is not special anymore because everybody uses it. This is, again, a contradiction. One is justified apart from works of the law. First is justified by works, not by faith alone. Now what? There's faith and there's faith. Let's call it saving faith. Put that on there. That'll confuse people. Call it genuine faith. I don't even know. I don't even want to write this down because you guys can have your own name. But I just think that there's faith is too generic. Perfected faith, that's actually the word James uses. 
Faith is perfected. That word is teleos. That's a heavy theological word in the Greek dictionary. I like this one, motorized faith. Because it makes you get off your rear end and move. In fact, I was at, uh, we were working with ch people from China, we try, and uh, we tried to uh, convert outliers. Well, so these guys would come to the U.S., and the top people come to Harvard. And the hardest people at Harvard are the Communist Party members. And it turns out, I would love to say this because I think it sounds cool, it's easier to convert a Chinese Communist Party member to, to Jesus Christ than it is to convert a man on the street in Boston. Okay. And so uh, I was talking to them about this concept. I said, is there a Chinese word that describes kind of this faith that kind of gets you going? And, he, and they said, yeah, toi dong. Well, even though I look Chinese, I don't understand Chinese, but, but I got that word understood. I can say, what's for dinner, and I can also say goodbye. But anyway, I can also say toi dong. Now, toi means push, and dong means move. Dong, so kind of like movement. Dong, I can remember dong as movement. But anyway, push you to move. I'm trying to get mnemonic devices. I remember this stuff. Toi dong, you guys surprise your Chinese friends that you know the word toi dong, because it literally means push, move. Push to move. It, it is some kind of faith that gets you to do something. Right? So if we know that uh, you're selling Super Bowl tickets instead of Friday at noon, they're going to open Thursday at 8 a.m., you run down there and get in line. Or if there's a Black Friday sale, you've got to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning to stand up. People who believe things move, and that's a special kind of belief because it causes you to move. It pushes you to move. So that's the word we're looking at. So I'm, I'm calling it um, something that causes you to, uh, it, it causes an impetus to move. Another guy, I, I had the term faith with hair on it. And I got that from Dennis Eckersley, who I don't know, in the Hall of Fame pitcher, calls the Red Sox games. And he sees this pitch, he goes, oh, you see that pitch? That pitch had hair on it. And what he meant by that, it was impossible to hit. A very special pitch, pitch with hair on it. And, and so why don't we put that on faith? I asked my wife if that was a good idea. She said, no, 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 no. <laughs> I said, it's a man's conference. She said, no, no, no. But I like that word, faith with hair on it. We gotta, we gotta get something special. And I can't teach you toy dung, and so maybe motorized faith, I don't know. Whatever you want, but that's what we're talking about. So faith that becomes an impulse to action. Even the devil believes God is one. The devil believes Jesus Christ was God's son. The devil believes he went to a Roman cross and the devil believes he did rise from the dead, but that ain't going to save them. It's not just believing. It's believing where you move. It's believing where you're doing something. And I think that's what this much more thing, I'm having a hard time understanding it, but I think this much more stuff is happening, okay? Because it's not a one and done, say a sinner's prayer and you're done. Give me a break. It's like my 
brother-in-law who lives in Vegas just had open heart surgery. I'm saved. Don't worry about it. Romans 6, verse 1, shall we continue to sin then so grace can abound? It's, it's a rhetorical question, but it's, there, it's an obvious answer that it does, may ganetto in the Greek, it just doesn't make any sense because if salvation is becoming one with Christ, crucified with Christ, buried with him, and you're raised with him, how can a person who is locked like this to Jesus go on and continue sinning? So it doesn't actually say it, but the understanding of what, what it meant to us means there is no way you can continue in a lifestyle of sin if you belong to Jesus because he is on you like this. It's, he's piggybacked. Now we got a problem. So a guy named Pelagius, who was a contemporary with Augustine, he said you have to go for a sinless perfection. Well, we know that doesn't last very long. Nobody can do that. So... So it's not sinless perfection, and that's where we're at. What are we going to do by the persistent problem with sin? Okay, so Jerry's taking a close look at it, and his conclusion is there's sins above the line and sins below the line. And above the line stuff, you can fix. We can work on our behavior. We can clean ourselves up and look good. But to clean up your problem below the line, your very nature, that's going to take much more. And I think that when we look at Rahab, she's standing there in the rubble. She's watching her neighbors. She's watching Roxanne and all her girls get stuck by these spirits. Because God said, I don't want anybody and I don't want one person alive. In fact, that was her feeling when they kept on going. They couldn't help it. They had to keep. I mean, there's a cute little blonde, and there's really a fat ox. I mean, they just kept the best. And God just, I told you guys to annihilate them. But anyway, uh, I lost my train of thought. I forgot where I was. Anybody remember where I was? That's okay. Pardon me? I got, I got my hearing aid, so I, I still can't hear. What'd you say? Cute blonde. Cute? Cute. Oh, cute blonde. No, no, no. That was a side thing. No, no, no. Forget the cute blonde. Get that erased. I'm just talking about a number of ways that they, they just don't kill everybody. But anyway, here's, a, here's Rahab. And she has, and Jerry said yesterday... God never tires of redemption. He says, Jesus, was he plan B or plan C? What if Adam and Eve did not sin? Then we got we to gotta stay on probation the rest of our lives. As long as one person, probably a girl, sweetheart who just never sins, probably some Amish girl, you know, as long as she stays away from that fruit, a Garden of Eden, Everybody's locked out who's already sinned. You can't extend grace because it's not fair to her. So what he does is he slaps everybody with sin, puts everybody in the sinner's canal, and, he, and that's doing us a favor. Okay? And now Jerry's thesis is that we're even better than angels because the angels are already very nervous because they were one and done. 
They created righteous, they created pristine environment, all this stuff. They were a true one and done because one screw up, even though they're righteous and innocent and wise and beautiful, they're gone. And then Lucifer took uh, one third of the angels with him and they're done and everybody is now locked. And here we go with plan B, which is Adam and Eve. And, we, and they're watching, as, uh, as uh, Jerry described, that, that we're, uh-oh, we're going to do this all over again. And it's not a one and done. Because as Jerry put it, God is going to pull a, rat out, a, hat out of the, uh, a rabbit out of the hat. And he's got to have a redemption plan. You know? And there's something strange about this redemption plan, but God is up to so much incredible stuff in his workshop that he is creating something that eyes have not seen, ears that have not heard. He is creating new creatures that are holy, cow never before seen, and that is a redeemed person. But as the Chinese say, no matter how much you eat in a day, you can never get fat from one day even if you just stuff yourself. So I saw what I always say when I'm eating. Like Chinese say, you can't get fat in one day. (laughs) But the point is, if you do it day after day, week after week, month after month, that's when you get fat. And same with working out and getting a good body that the girls will notice. It's not just one day of, of, uh, what do you call those, presses or bench presses, it's day after day, week after week, and then, then you get that. And same with sanctification. It's not one day. Rahab's standing there, she is still a madame prostitute, she's a liar, and she is now headed into part B of her salvation. Just her redemption is much more than justification. It is much more. Now, what you lost in Jesus Christ, much more, sorry, what you lost in Adam because you got linked into him, much more do you get when you're linked into Jesus Christ. And so we say, well, isn't that sanctification? Yeah, but it's sanctification for sure. But, of course, we're already sinless, we're already holy, we're already loved by Jesus, but the problem is your wife knows that the reality of it is you still stink. You're still such a sinner. You still fall short. So we got to, this gap between what positionally that we've been saved in Jesus, the reality, what our wife says about us, this gap has got to be closed before we die. And according to the rumor that's propagated by Jerry, that <laughs> I apologize for that. It's more than a rumor. I, but you've got to have faith, so in a sense it's a rumor. So we've got to close this gap to make what the Bible says about us, we are holy and perfect, and the reality of what we really are. We've got to get as close as possible and not through above the line behavior. It's got to be our inner nature. Now, that involves denying the self or getting whacked out of left field by God.
to make us have pain because he's linked pain with sin. Now that is not good news. A good thing I didn't hear about that when I was in the army ready to get converted. I would have never signed up. You think I want to sign up for death? You know? What a job to have to market a religion of death. Okay? But I think that's what's much more. Now, I think Rahab had something like that. But I think she cheated because if you get absorbed into Israeli culture, you're going to change. I mean, whether you like it or not. You just saw what those people did. You ain't going to fool with anybody. But they tell you to submit to your husband right away. I'll just do it. Everything. They're not going to argue on anything. So even though she's an Old Testament character, God is consistent in some way. He brings her through this incredible life that she goes from this prostitute who had this brothel to the point where she is Boaz's mother. She has trained Boaz. That's the only piece of data we have. You know. and, and I would love to get with her I hope she's not that great looking in heaven either because I'll still probably have problems. But I'd like to just talk to her and, and figure out what happened when she, from the time she got converted to the time she went all, went all the way. And the goal in life is to go as far as you can because as Jerry says, you got one chance to go as far as you can because the rumor is that death is confirmation not transformation. Now, I actually would like to go to a church that tells you when you die, you will be completely changed into a perfect angel. And if that's true, there's nothing to do now. Yeah. But if the rumor is true, and the, I think the biblical basis for this rumor is flaky. But again, that is a terrible thing to say. That just shows what kind of nature I have. But there is biblical basis that when you die, you are confirmed into what you have been on earth. The very below the line stuff of who you are is confirmed and you bring that into eternity. There's been hints at this, week, at this weekend retreat that there could be sin in, in heaven because the only way to prevent sin from being in heaven is to give us a lobotomy, give all of us going in a lobotomy. And we'll be going in like R2-D2, beep-dee-beep. I uh, love you, God. Praise your name, Lord, beep-dee-beep. I love you forever, beep-beep-beep. You too, God. You too, Holy Spirit. I love you forever. You know, that's not heaven. We're going in with our free will, and we're going in with what we are. Now, I'm sure God has got more rabbits up his sleeve, and I'm sure he's got ways to mitigate having the likes of me, you know, unchanged, okay? So I think this concept that we've been hearing at this, this retreat is so important because we have been asleep at the wheel, you know. We think really it is one and done. Now, we're still in Christian families, but this is an amazing task that we have got to work on. It is just starting. When we just get converted, we're just starting. I wish I'd have known this when I was a young man. Uh, you know, I, it's, it's getting late. I got to get rid of this below-the-line crap that's still in me. And these things that aren't really sins, like you get ticked because your roommate didn't wake you up yesterday, and you get ticked because 
you're, you're uh, proud of something. I mean, it's just so many, it's just hopeless. It is just so hopeless. But the only way to do it is to use the helper. And in John 12, I mean, this, the story and gospel of John is like over by 13. And we were over the six, the book's got 23 chapters. And uh, he washes their feet in 13. Then 14, 15, and 16, he tells them about the helper. This is plan B. This is the spirit of God living in you. And then he, he said, let's go out. Let's do this. Let's get arrested. I think I'm, I'm, I think I'm over, right? Okay. So uh, thank goodness I'm over, out of time because I think the stuff that, uh, uh, of uh, trying to figure out uh, what, what this much more stuff means in example in the life of Rahab is uh, something that uh, we, have, we have no idea. But again, Rahab was just getting started. And we're just getting started. And we gotta, we gotta be on our A game to, make, to take advantage of the fact that the Holy Spirit can come in. That, but the basically, I wanna just say, close with the Holy Spirit really is a wimp. Now, forgive me God for calling you a wimp, but he is a wimp and he, resides in us and when he like knocks on us and says you know don't you think you ought to just apologize to your wife here why don't you just calm down and stop being angry or why don't you turn the computer on or you can put your eyeballs on that pornography in the computer and we say shush and we actually close off that still small voice of the spirit in your life. And how do I know that? It's in the Bible. The Bible specifically warns us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, around 19, do not quench the spirit. Quenching the spirit is like taking a buck of ice water and dumping it on him. And when you do, he shrinks back. He goes back into his closet and he doesn't come out again. You gotta let him come out and hassle you and talk to you so that you can start this process. Now, who wants to die? Who wants to deny himself? But that's the whole ballgame. But don't worry, he's going to help you. So you deny yourself, and then you create a little hole in your soul. And that little teeny hole gets vacated by you yourself, and that is when the Holy Spirit can sneak into that hole and get that. And then again, just like working out, I guess getting fat, day after day, week after week, month after one, a lifetime, your life becomes partly partakers of the divine nature. That, I think, is the bottom line to this weekend. And I think Rahab cheated. But the change that happens after you say that prayer, that's what it's all about. That is what the much more is all about. And I think everybody's different, and it's not detailed out there in, a, in an SOP, which I wish it was, but uh, that's what it's all about. Let me pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your rich word. Thank you for even something silly, like a story about a prostitute could mean so much. Thank you that it's not just a collection of books and not just an anthology, but your word is one story with Jesus Christ 
in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, centerpiece of the whole story from Genesis to Revelation. We're glad we're part of that story. We're glad you chose us. We know for sure we didn't do anything to deserve it. But we know we have a part in getting as close to what you have already positioned us to be as possible so we don't take, so we can lessen the risks in heaven. And Lord, I beg you on behalf of myself and the men here gathered in the room that we could leave here uh, not unchanged, but we would leave here changed because we are on a new quest. And that quest, for lack of other words, is called much more. And that quest is to be more than just converted, but that we take on the very nature of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, and because he made it possible. Amen.